In grade six, I moved to Dorval and all that comes with a new move. I had no friends, no sense of being. I wasn't big or athletic. My mom sewed my own shirts and there were bright colors and paisleys and psychedelics. But I had a sharp mind and wit. And as a class clown, I found my niche. My teacher that year was Mrs. Bethke and she teamed up with another teacher, Doug Flohn, to put on the annual school play. They channeled my energy from me thinking that my classroom was my stage to putting me on an actual stage. That year I was cast as a narrator in The Wizard of Oz, following year as the King of Hearts in Alice in Wonderland. Alan Clark, a buddy of mine, was the Queen of Hearts, and Cheryl Arist, who I had a mad crush on and managed to hold her hand once, was the Queen. From that point, I grew up with a love for theater. I didn't care when or where. It could be a street busker, a small town production, to the big productions on Broadway or the West End of London or Toronto. Drama or comedy to the biggest musicals, I love them all. And I especially love the people who know how to grab the spotlight and act upon the stage they're given. Another time I'll tell you about a TV show I was in, but today I want to tell you about someone who I first saw on television. Her name is Erica M. Live from coast to coast, the launch of Canada's first 24-hour music channel, the nation's music station, Much Music. Darn you! Darn you, Dire Straits, we want Paul back, but he's taken. Mitsu, where didn't you get your outfit today? <laughs> In your wardrobe. <laughs> you don't Good. remember? I know, thank you very much. And the songs were written, Half Outside the Country does not actually qualify as Canadian music. Interesting, is it? And she was one of the biggest VJs on Much Music, and for a decade she owned that platform. Interviewed some of the biggest stars in the world. Are you becoming sex symbols? I, I am by no means a sex symbol. I would say that if anybody in the band was considered a sex symbol, it would be Flea. I don't think so. But it wasn't just that stage she saw opportunity on. She starred in TV shows, she directed musicals, she wrote songs, and she became a pioneer in the digital marketing influencer space. And today, Erica's giving back with a non-for-profit called the Inside Out Initiative that inspires youth to seek their own spotlight, to pursue and bask in what makes them passionate. Erica M. is my guest this week on Chatter That Matters. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Erica, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thanks so much, Tony. I've been waiting for this. Help me with what's the best way to describe you? Because the more I did research, the more I see you as a force of human nature. You've done so much. You've done it so well. You've created content. You've been the face of content. Your website describes you as a host, creator, speaker, innovator, moderator, and disruptor. Is there one word that stands out above all? Well, I guess maybe it would be storyteller. But also, I use my voice to make things happen. So I don't know if that's one word, but I am tenacious. And when I have an idea in my head, I just make it happen. How much of that came from your childhood? I often, when I talk to people that do these extraordinary things, they talk about what happened at the dining room table or somebody that when I was young that really sort of touched me on the shoulder and made me believe that I could do anything. Was anyone like that in your life? Oh, absolutely. It was my mother. My mother said to my sister and I, you can be anything, you can do anything, be fearless, just go, go ask, ask for what you want. I mean, it was drilled into our heads. You know my sister, and you know that in many ways we're quite similar. We're different in many ways, but there is sort of core of 
we can do anything that my parents drilled into us. Where did your mom get that from? Because I would say back then, and I'm certainly not dating you, but just uh, moms back then, you know, weren't always as, you know, that ferocious in terms of sending people out in the world and saying, you know, there's no such thing as a glass ceiling. I was curious about that myself. And I started to do some research. And it's interesting, my, I come from a very strong line of matriarchs. My grandmother, her husband ran a clothing store in Montreal on the famous Saint Laurent Boulevard. And when he died, she, in her 50s, took over the store with no experience whatsoever. And her sister was a big shot in New York City working for a transportation mogul. She was his right-hand person. They were both formidable women and really kind. And I am the result of growing up around really strong women. So at age 17, you become a DJ at Shom FM. That's a, one of the top radio stations in Montreal. And you didn't stop there. You decided to use your teenage years to also be a DJ in punk clubs, record stores, managing brands. What brought you into this whole world of music and this sense of adventure? I'm one of those people that found their passion and tapped into their purpose at a very young age. I was lit right up. It was all I wanted to do was work in the music business. And I didn't even understand what I was doing. I was just tenacious. I was put myself in front of really important people and said, hey, can I do this? I just would knock on people's doors. And there was this sort of 17 or 18 year old punk rocker with a big smile and enthusiasm and said, I'll do anything. And they let me. And I kept on learning and sort of rising up in the business and making connections and building community and making a network of music enthusiasts that started to expand. And I learned. I was sort of at this school of life, I guess you could call it. And then you go from knocking on doors to knocking on University of Ottawa to take a communications degree. What was it like to go from, I would sense a world where you're trying everything to getting to the rigor of university? What did you learn about yourself having to go with their pace versus you setting your own pace? Well, the one thing that I learned was that I was not cut out for university. My professors all said to me, you should be working. For example, one of my media professors said to me, okay, your project you need to do an essay on anything. And so I wrote how to get a number one hit single on Billboard. So I was very practical. I just wanted to, you know, let me go and do it. I mean, the only reason why I went to university in the first place is because when I met Bono backstage at a concert when I was 18, he said, you'd be great in PR because I couldn't stop talking. And so I found a school that taught PR and went to that school. And my dad said he'd pay for my you know, tuition and my and my room and board. And at that point, I already had moved out. When I was 17, I was already living on my own and, you know, paying for all my expenses myself. So that was, that was a good perk. But university really isn't for me because I don't think conventionally. I challenge the norm. And at university, you kind of have, have to have the right answer. Just so I heard it correctly, you didn't go to school because it was your parents' wish. You went because Bono, as in Bono and you too, said you'd be good in PR. You heard correct. <laughs> this is what I love about you is, be, is the places you end up being. You get out of school and you get a job at City TV for the new music TV show. What was it like being part of something new and yet knowing you're at the very 
ground floor, not just in terms of what's going to be created, but really what your job was. Okay, listen, when I met Moses and I asked him for a job, he asked me, what do you want to do at City TV? He didn't necessarily want to hire me. And first of all, I said to him, I just read this great book called Four Arguments for the Elimination of Television. And I watched his smile turn into a scowl. And I realized my first faux pas was not to talk about the demise of the medium that my potential boss was a visionary in. Secondly, when he asked me what I wanted to do, I said, anything creative. Oh, he, it got him so angry because he said, every job at City TV is creative. And the thing is, Tony, you know, as a business owner, that every job at, for example, Cap C, your agency, everyone was expected to be at the top of their game and be creative in whatever role it was. From accounting, well, you don't want to have creative accounting, but you want to have people who who appreciated the arts and the and creativity in the world of accounting. And so at City TV, when I started to work there, I was with my people. No matter what job people had, we were all expected to bring 100% of who we are, to challenge ourselves, to come up with ideas, to work really hard and to build something that no one had ever seen before. So I was so happy and so proud to be there, which is why I ended up 13 years staying there. Hi, this is Tony Chapman. I'm chatting with the one and only Erica M. When we come back, Erica scores a job as a VJ with Much Music. Before long, she's interviewing some of the biggest acts in the world. We hear about a surprising conversation with Kurt Cobain just weeks before he left us. The nation's music station, Much Music. Get on with it here, all right. All right, heck of a way to start a rock and roll show. Yeah, that's a little bit of a snappy opening, isn't it? You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. If you're just joining the show, Erica M is my guest. She began her career at age 17 as a DJ. She spent a decade interviewing some of the top music artists. The Rolling Stones are in the spotlight today, but instead of me going on and on about their 25-year career, I think it'll be a lot... Erica, you're manning the phones at this new music TV show, but that turns into a job as one of their first VJs. How did that come about? Well, as you know, I already, by the time I was 22, I already had racked up quite a resume in the music business. I don't think there are many women who had so much experience working sort of in the pits of the music business. I also worked part-time nights and weekends. So whenever I wasn't working, I was working at the local cable company. At the cable company, I didn't get paid. It was just working for free, but I was able to host shows there. I made a demo tape at the show after, you know, learning how to be on air for about three years. And I showed it to J.D. Roberts, who was the star of Much Music. And I worked with him very closely. And he said, this is crap. And he asked the crew, the behind the scenes crew who hosted and ran Much Music to make me a demo tape. And so I was really lucky because I had been part of that gang for the you know, three years prior. They did do a demo for me. I showed it to Nancy and John Martin, who were the uh, bosses at Much. And then they eventually gave me the job. But I didn't want to be on Much Music. I wanted to be an entertainment reporter, where you go out locally to all the events, theater, music, whatever was happening, and report on that. And that wasn't live. So you could learn on the job and edit. But no, they threw me in live TV with almost no training. And they kind of threw me to the wolves, sink or swim. And it took me a long time to start swimming. 
but it was a great education. When did you first feel that you had what it takes to command the spotlight, but at the same time as we know as an interviewer, make sure you share that spotlight generously with the people you talk to? Well, I still don't believe it. I mean, I still question why me, but then I have this thing in me, this passion and this purpose that I can't get away from. And I think it was probably one of the interviews I did with Duran Duran, which went wildly out of control and yet was in control. I knew what I was doing. I was confident enough to look these guys in the eye and make sure that they knew that I was still in control while they created chaos in the room. And so we make great TV together and we accomplished what I wanted, you know, be known as the art or the interviewer that allows the stars' personalities to come out. And what they wanted was to make a big bang and to look like troublemakers. And so we it was a win-win interview. And I think that was the first one that was big for me. What advice can you give to my audience? Because I love what you said. You know, it looked like they, they were out of control, but I was always in control. When you go into a situation like that, having that desired outcome in mind, is that something that's your trademark that you know ultimately what you're after and then you're willing to allow a lot of flexibility within? Exactly. The only time you're out of control is when you say you're out of control. Because especially if you're doing an interview, you can always say, I'm sorry, but that is not the question I asked. I mean, especially when you watch reporters and you watch politicians sort of weasel their way out of answers. If I was there, I'd say, well, that's that's not what I asked you. In an article I read that you wrote, a very beautiful article, you talked about meeting Kurt Cobain. Take us back to that time. And again, in some ways, how you kept control, but they also got a different side of Kurt than most people know of. I was nervous because he is absolutely against or was against the mainstream. And I also knew that I was going to be sort of competing with many other journalists to get the stories. We were on a junket. A junket means these artists go from room to room with very little breaks in between, ask the same questions, and it's soulless. So I tried something a little different when he walked into the room. I said, hey, I'm Erica. Do you want to do the interview in bed or on the balcony? And I watched him see me, not as a journalist, but as some kind of wacky girl. That was on purpose. He said, well, he got very nervous. And he said, let's do it outside on the balcony. I went, no problem. So we grabbed our camera. We go outside. And the questions that I, I had created in advance were all quite personal. I wanted to know something about the man behind this rock star persona that he was was kind of thrust on him, I thought. pretty bright, and your lyrics are, and just your whole stage persona is pretty angry, angst-ridden, frustrated. I mean, you see the world for what it is. Did you ever have second thoughts about bringing a child into the world the way oh, it is? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I really was a lot more negative and, and angry and everything else a few years ago, but that was that had a lot to do with not having not having a mate you know not having a, a steady girlfriend and stuff like that so I, she saw me really listening to the answers and so I think that there was just a strong connection because he felt like I actually cared about what I was asking and he was thrilled that he got to talk about things that weren't the same old rock star questions once you fall in love it's, it's a different I don't 
don't want to know about it. Stop. <laughs> and he passed away not that long afterwards. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, I think it was three months later, if I remember correctly. How does that make you feel? As you know, I know you're interviewing people all the time, but when you connect with somebody like that, I almost felt like you felt a bit like a mother. You just wanted to hug him and say, "It's okay. You can be who you are. You don't have to be this rock star." So it must have impacted you quite a bit when he passed away. Well, it actually made me angry when suicide is involved. I'm angry for the enablers around him. There was apparently a lot of drugs involved. And that was almost a turning point when I decided I wanted to leave the music business. I'm a pretty authentic person. And I feel like the music business gives permission for people to be bigger than what they deserve to be. So let's move on from the music industry. After over a decade, reputation, you can write anything you want to do. You performed in The Unidentified Human Remains and True Nature of Love. That's a completely different tightrope you're on. What made you decide that everything I had in my knapsack was wonderful, but I, I just needed to find some new territory to, to go over? It was my dream to be an actress. From the time I was very young, I was acting, taking acting classes. I was directing people in my basement who weren't even there. This opportunity arose where I was asked to audition for this play, and I was actually still working at Much Music, and Moses gave me the time off, so I was off for about six months. It was an amazing experience. I loved it so much, and it reminded me that I am a terrible actress, and I'm much better playing myself than somebody else. And how did that make you feel? Did that say that I'm just going to go back to what I have done in the past, or did the com combination of the two set you off on a different course in life? It just confirmed that I can do anything I set my mind to. It was terrifying. I mean, I, I got sick while I was doing it because I was so stressed out, but I did it. And, you know, isn't that what life is, is about conquering your fears and doing something that scares you every day? I did it. I survived. So talk to me about that, because in life, very often we find ourselves in a situation where we're surrounded by experienced people it, it immediately our sort of imposter syndrome clicks in. We don't deserve to be there. We're going to let people down. And that often doesn't lead to great natural performances. How did you overcome that so that, you know, that the natural Erica could come shining through, even if you don't have the experience? The natural Erica would be hiding in a corner. But Erica with a bold face says, get up and do it. This is what you want to do. It's almost like I hear my mom's voice, like, go and do it. Because what is the alternative? The alternative is you miss out on an incredible experience. Do it. You now make another big pivot and decide that you're going to become a songwriter. That's a tough profession. So what's interesting is that it isn't really a pivot. It's doing the same thing in a different medium. I'm a storyteller. Songs are stories put to music, but you need to have a point of view. You need to have an idea. You need to have something you want to share. And you need, in my mind, you need to do it with people. So I come alive when I get to collaborate with people. The other person may be much better in some ways, or I may be stronger in other things. And you sort of throw out the rules and you walk into a room and you walk out with something that was nothing before you were there. And that's what turns me on. It's just creating something that didn't exist before. What stood out the most during that time? I mean, host, songwriter, you wrote a children's book, like a lot of people do in their 30s saying, that might be the path I'm now gonna focus on. Well, I guess the thing that happened was I got pregnant. I had, well, I got married 
And then I had kids and my world fell apart. Hi, this is Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters presented by RBC. We come back, we're gonna talk more about how motherhood was one of the most difficult things that Erica did. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters presented by RBC. Small business owners are the heart of our economy and it's our collective interest to keep them beating strong. Small Business Matters to RBC and a big shout out for their Small Business Navigator portal that points the way to practical resources, money-saving offers, and financial advice. Find out more at rbc.com slash smallbusinessnavigator. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. This person who's an A-type, who likes to make things happen, who's freewheeler, uh, networker, opportunist, suddenly had to put all of it aside and stay inside with my temperamental babies. And that was really hard. Probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. Today I'm chatting with actor, songwriter, content creator, entrepreneur, humanitarian, and in early days, a reluctant mother, Erica M. Tell me a little bit more about married Two young babies. I mean, was it? Did you feel like in some ways you're in prison because you wanted to do so many different things, and yet your your entire focus had to be with your children? Yes, I did feel like I was in prison, and what I did, something sparked in me, and my passion to be a good parent, because I really didn't understand what it took to be a parent, set me on a path of learning. That's what I like to do. So I started to learn about parenting, and then I was like, hmm. Why don't I get paid to learn? And so I got a job as the editor of a parenting magazine, a really small one called What's Up Kids. And that started my next journey, I guess you'd call it, into the world of creating content for parents. And that has been my most prolific time in my life and certainly the proudest time in my life. When you first came on the map for me, I mean, I knew you as a VJ and I knew you as a celebrity, but I... When I saw what you're doing with the Yummy Mummy, first, you know, television series, and then you're creating this club and trying to bring moms together to talk and feel that there's some great common denominator, that took off. Like, this is way before digital and creating the sense of groups and stuff. You were way ahead of your time. Yeah, that was a time where I invented this concept of online communities. It was way before a lot of the brands and even media properties had understood the power of community. I kind of leveraged what I learned at City TV and applied it to motherhood. So I started a little website and I found basically something like 50 women, each who had a unique expertise. Uh, None of them were broadcasters, but I taught them much like Moses taught all of us who lead with passion. And then we teach the skills to communicate that passion. It became a thing. Uh, And then when Twitter happened, it just blew up because suddenly I could extend the reach even more so. And this was after having a TV show on Life Network and Discovery Health around the world called Yummy Mummy. This was the next stage. And what was interesting is that I owned this part of it. I invented it. I owned it. I built it. And it sort of reflected my values, as you mentioned, about women reclaiming their identities. For sure, there's a feminist undercurrent to the website. In fact, the name Yummy Mummy, some people rolled their eyes, but I was like, no, that's what men called us. And I'm like, no, F off. That's our word. And our yummy is a state of mind. 
It's not like being a cougar or something like that. We own it. So there's this girl, this modern girl. Now I really got it all on my yummy mommy. So let's talk a bit about that insight because your eyes lit up when I was chatting with him and you said, this was mine. I controlled it. I was no longer at the mercy of a stage director or an owner of a TV network. This was my business. I was both content creator and publisher. How did you deal with the pressures of that? Because now you're accountable for every word, every picture, everything that you put out there is really attached to you as an individual. But with it also comes great pride, companionship. I built an entire community. This business was run by moms for moms, all of us virtually from our kitchens. And so the upside was way more important to me than the potential downside. The downside was I would be helpless and dependent on someone to hire me. And clearly no one was interested in hiring an aging VJ anymore. So I had to, I had to create my future. Looking back at that time, because it's I, when you're building something, it's so exciting, it's exhilarating. But I think it's only after you've been out of it for a while that you look back and say, this is what mattered most. Is there anything that really stands out during your time building Yummy Mummy and, and what came afterwards in terms of your digital communities? I think it was the power to empower women. So I was able to create an ecosystem where women were able to stay home and do what they love and earn a living and be part of a very uh, positive community that gave women permission to pursue what they loved while taking care of their kids. And hopefully other companies will learn from what I did and understand that if you give women flexibility and space to create, they're unstoppable. Erica, when we worked together, you had this YMC community. And when you talked about it, you talked about how these people are influencers. Again, that was a decade ahead of anybody to even fathom the fact that an individual, a citizen, could impact the way people think, feel, and behave. Where did, where did you come up with that? Well, what happened was when we started to monetize our community, the YMC community, I had all these brands coming up to us and we started to develop these 360 programs where we would create all kinds of opportunities for real moms to speak about brands. And I had families from all over the country who wanted to participate. And so we built the YMC network where they were essentially hired to write sponsored content or to uh, amplify what we were writing. And that was way before there was a word called influencers. And it started, I think, the ball rolling on the, the potential of using regular people who had trust because media has lost all trust. But each of us, back in the day, had a lot of trust with our friends because we all have become broadcasters, all of our community. I guess I just leveraged everybody's communities, micro-communities, to build brand awareness. Then everybody stole my idea. <laughs> I think Rihanna and Ryan Reynolds each owe a significant royalty check for that, uh, that genius. I don't know if you remember this, but I hired you as part of sort of five thought leaders when I had the, uh, was working with Unilever under Suave Shampoo. And I remember you coming in the first time in the boardroom, firing on all cylinders, you had energy, conviction, confidence, personality. It's almost like you took over the room, but at the same time, you listened and you thought. And when you made comments, it wasn't just to be heard. It was because you felt there was things 
they're worth hearing. First of all, I want to tell you what I remember about you because I didn't know what Cap C was and I didn't know that you were the boss. And so we were in this large room and people were talking and then you spoke and all eyes turned to you. And what you said had so much weight. And I turned to somebody and went, who's that? You are a visionary leader and you still are in this podcast. And so I find it like it's very exciting for me to be doing this conversation. You really do see. And the way you just described me, the fact that I listen, most people don't understand that. And that's an incredible skill. In fact, I'm working on a program route to help teach people how to listen and to explain why listening is such an important skill um, for success, both in your business and personally as well. And I think listening comes with confidence and a desire to learn. Because when you listen, you can absorb and then synthesize information that makes you smarter. What did you do after YMC Network? What was your next move on the chessboard? Listen, Tony, I'm still doing YMC. It's been 15 years. The business is still going. Last year, I got a phone call from a guy in LA who wanted me to write a show for him, a stage show. And through networking, people that I knew, he reached out. And so we wrote a show. But the problem was we created this show and we were about to go live in Scotland at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And then COVID shut everything down. So we didn't get to show our beautiful play to anyone. And so we we pivoted. We thought differently, like, how do we solve this problem? I think that's my my strength is really a problem, creative problem solver. And so instead, we decided to create the show on Zoom, where we had all these amazing actors, many of the stars of Hamilton on, in um, London, on the stage of London, all were out of business because all theater had been shut down. So everybody was sent green screens, fantastic microphones, and we shot everybody's scenes in their homes against green screens. And then we had uh, these amazing producers who put it all together. And now it's on YouTube. It's streaming on YouTube. And it's an, an adorable show. It's called Out of the Books. After all the success, Erica, you could just simply write a check to any charity you want. But instead, first you started it with pediatric pain researchers. I want to talk a little bit about that. But I also want to talk about what you're doing to inject some much needed energy and positivity with youth. So first, just tell me a little bit about your first move with pediatric pain. I never know where the next opportunity is going to pop in. This one showed up in a private message on Twitter. Hi, I'm a mom of four and I'm a psychologist. I have an idea. Are you open? Of course I'm open. She didn't tell me the whole story, but what she did say is I'll fly in to Toronto to meet you, which I thought was kind of unusual that this mom of four can just fly in. We had a conversation. It turns out that she is, in fact, one of the most respected pain researchers in the country. And she said, you know that stuff that you do with brands to connect with moms? Can you do that with pain research? You want to do a marketing program for pain. She goes, yes, that's called knowledge mobilization. It's actually a really important part. When you do research, you can't just do the research. You actually need to get that research into the end user's hands. And usually that's done with posters or articles. And she goes, that's boring. And our two teams work together. So my digital marketing agency, which is M&Co, and her pediatric pain research team collaborated on a marketing initiative to spread the word about how parents can treat and should treat kids in pain. We use the hashtag, it doesn't have to hurt. And the program blew up. 
Um, I mean, it was even written up in the New York Times and we won all kinds of awards for our collaboration and we got that information into Paris' hands. We come back, Erica M uses her celebrity, her creativity and her influence to start working on ways to make this planet better. As you walk your daily tightrope, trying desperately not to fall, keep in mind that we're all struggling to find a happy balance in our lives. Tough times are bound to pop up to make us feel unsteady, but with focus, practice, and one foot in front of the other, you'll get through it eventually. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. If you're just joining the show, Erica M is my guest. She began her career at age 17 as a DJ. She spent a decade interviewing some of the top music artists. She's had as songwriter, Juno Award winner, book, author, TV host, and star, an extraordinary entrepreneur to her repertoire. So let's talk about your next big collaboration. You created a non-for-profit called Inside Out Initiative. And I could just, I wish you people could, this is, you know, it's an audio broadcast, see you smile right now, because tell us what you're doing and why do you feel this matters so much? I have teenagers and COVID really sucker punched our teens as well as all of us. But our teens are our future. I started a Facebook group for parents of teens to, it's called Parents of Teens Survivor Group, so we can have those difficult conversations safely. But it's not enough. And I was connected to Israel Diaz and Heidi Phillip, who are really progressive thinkers. And then Luke Coles, who is a principal at Blythe Academy. And the four of us started to talk about what needs to happen so that we can change the way teens today are being taught so that they can learn, live, and work better in the future. Our kids right now are still being taught based on sort of the industrial era. I mean, you know this, Tony, right? That they're being taught to listen, to find the right answer, to listen to authority. We need to raise critical thinkers. I mean, look what's happening in the world. Part of that is because critical thinking is not top priority. So for kids to become critical thinkers, decision makers, creative thinkers, out of the box, no right answers, intrinsically motivated. So we started this Inside Out initiative to work with progressive parents and educators to come up with solutions to help kids evolve in a different way. And so we'll be working with teens. We just did what we call an academy boot camp so that kids wouldn't be empowered because that's externally, but rather to help kids become me power to understand who they are and what lights them up and what their passions are, what their purpose is, what their potential is. Then we're going to be talking to parents so that they speak the same language. So when their kids say, no, I don't want to be a doctor, we, no one, will be fulfilled if you sort of push your external agenda on them. Like that's what my parents did with my sister and I. They let us be ourselves and they let us flounder our way through experience. We, we learned who we are. When you do what you love, you stay in the job longer. You know how everybody is changing jobs every year now because they're not lit up. What's the best way for my audience to find out about what you're doing? They can go to ioi.live or they can email us at hello at ioi.live. Erica, I always end my podcast with the three things that I've learned today. The first one is the sense of control. You've always been in control of fueling your passion for creativity and making a difference. 
The second one is community. It's a community that, that you talk about when you collaborate with other artists. It's a community of the mums that you brought together. You're just so giving and wanting to enrich all who are around you. But the final thing, the most powerful, is this sense of to be. And what I mean by to be is you're always, you're being in the moment. You know, somebody reached out one day and said, can I come and chat with you? Wanting people to be the best they can be. You're wanting people to reclaim their heart, their passion, their soul. Wanting people to go through life feeling the way you do. And I think it's so amazing uh, what you're doing now with your new not-for-profit. I think there's going to be a lot of kids and parents 10, 15, 20 years from now, they're going to say, thankfully, Erica M told stories, but also told stories that matter to me. Thank you for joining me on uh, Chatter That Matters. Thanks so much, Tony. I just love talking to you. Joining me now is Nadine Renault-Tinker. She's the president of Quebec headquarters at RBC. Nadine, welcome. Thank you, Tony. Glad to be here. I've heard so many wonderful things about you, and I know you're a real advocate for supporting women-led business. Give me a sense of what you and RBC is doing to make sure that women have uh, a real chance to pursue their dreams. Women entrepreneurs have always been a really a sweet spot for myself. It's a personal passion, but obviously, like I know personally in RBC, we know that by developing a, an inclusive workplace, we can make a huge difference. So, you know, whether it's through supporting employees, whether it's through our clients or our communities, we know that women-led businesses, women-owned businesses are, are doing really courageous, creative, innovative work uh, day in and day out that makes a big difference in our economies. And for me, and, and I know for RBC, it's a big part of creating an equal opportunity for growth, for local opportunities, for the workplace as well, and in the communities where we do business. So Erica M was very open when she talked about having this great career, then she got pregnant, had a baby, and suddenly decided that she's going to be her own boss, that she was going to leave a paycheck. And she started doing things like writing songs and writing storybooks and, and her own TV show. How does a bank like RBC stay in step with someone that makes such a major career transformation? Yeah, it is major. I mean, every time you have a life change, it takes courage to make these changes and, and continue to kind of make your space, if you will. And a way that we can help really is how to continue to recognize that there are differences in terms of what the needs are for the businesses or, or women-run businesses. But giving access to advice is one really, really important. One that I know I've seen that's made a huge difference is how you, you create an access to peers, to mentor networks, you know, really recognizing, you know, women's achievements and successes as well, creating this safe space where you can continue to grow, you know, no matter what environment you're in, create these opportunities in a world that's, you know, not getting simpler as, as we speak, but continually getting more complicated. So how we build the next generation of our entrepreneurs, basically, right? When I went to RBC Navigator, I was surprised that it wasn't just financial advice. You had, you know, trying to start a business, here's some questions you should ask, or is this a good idea? Why is RBC getting involved so far beyond banking with Navigator? Is it just, is it the right thing to do? Is, are you doing it because it's really part of that journey of going from hired to being an entrepreneur? It's definitely the right thing to do. And in anything that we take on, really, whether it's for a woman entrepreneur or for Visible Minority or any of our projects that we're investing into to allow for space for BIPOC, for LGBT, 
for you know women or visible minorities that might have lesser access to opportunities. Well, it, it, it's absolutely the right thing to do, and and you know creating a program is one thing, creating a partnership is another thing. But if you're not there to accompany, advise, you know really kind of tailor a, a program, a mentoring program, or certain access that will provide you the advice that you need, then there's going to be a missing piece of, of of this recipe, right? So so for us, it's all about being there side by side to accompany them through their challenges. Not simply, and I, I, I don't know how else to say this, but writing a check is not going to help us, you know, build the world of tomorrow. It's about this constant advice and accompaniment in order to make space for women to be able to really make a difference in the world and learn and have access to programs that they might not have access to otherwise. You know, Nadine, the sad part of the podcast is people can't see my guests' eyes shine and smile and the pride that's on your face. Uh, I'm so happy you joined Chatter That Matters. I'm beyond excited by what everything you're doing to what you call create space, level that playing field, give people that opportunity. So thank you for joining me in Chatter That Matters. Uh, it's been my pleasure, Tony, and, and, and thanks for having us as well. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.